This Holy Week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we're journeying on in Hebrews. Covenant blood, the willing victim. The new and living way, a better possession and an abiding one. And the roll call of faith, Abel and Enoch. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. And I encourage you to use this time at home to get back in the Word, read our Bibles, and spend time with our families. I would vote for him this time for just one reason, because he has been stuffing the U.S. federal courts with serious, conservative, believing judges. While we are in this time of exile, it may be that some of these gifts of God are not able to be received as regularly as we would like. We are sinful, okay? And it's not a minor blemish. It's not like, oh, too bad, otherwise we're pretty good. No, there's a deep, utter corruption. This is a God-sized problem. You can't fix it. That Taiwan missionaries love issues, etc. We all know that it's going to change things. Certainly in the short term, perhaps in the long term. Now, not all change is bad. Sometimes events like a global pandemic bring about changes that need to be made anyway. And maybe the coronavirus pandemic has some of those changes in store for us ahead. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Live on this Friday afternoon, the 3rd of April. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be talking with Joy Pullman about cultural changes in the coronavirus. We'll have a Lenten meditation called The Earthquake and the Centurion's Confession with Pastor Peter Bender, director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. It's This Week in Pop Christianity with Pastor Chris Rosebro. We'll talk about the word faith teaching that we are little gods and the coronavirus. Then it's Issues Etc. Soundbite of the Week. We've got four soundbites to play for you. We will play them for you in the last half hour. You can vote in advance at our Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash issuesetc, or wait and give us a call, one 623 Send us an email, talkback at issuesetc.org, or vote via Twitter at issuesetc. Joining us to talk about some cultural changes that the global pandemic may bring, and maybe they need to be made, Joy Pullman, managing editor of The Federalist, author of the book The Education Invasion, and a recent column titled Seven Major Cultural Shifts, the coronavirus crisis should make happen. Joy, welcome back. Hi, thank you. Before we talk about some particular changes that need to happen post-coronavirus, do you think that the American people are capable of learning the many lessons that this time in our history will teach us? Well, (laughs) I think if you look historically, when there has been something, kind of this big kind of event, things change absolutely, you know, after the fact. And we're still honestly on the beginning of all of this. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know it's going to be a big deal, (laughs) regardless of whether the health crisis that we're told is about to happen, whether it materializes, where it materializes. So that will have one effect, but also the economic damage caused by, you know, what happens as well as shutting down our economy is going to have very severe 
long-term effects. I think it was it, yesterday or the day before, you know, they, we just found out that 10 million Americans filed for unemployment, the most we've ever seen, you know, in decades. So when that happens, it's a severe shock to the individuals involved and as well as, you know, we'll have reverberations to the economy. So whether people want to learn or not, you know, there are definitely going to be social shifts that happen as a result of this. So it's a little early to guess what they all might be, but I don't think it's too early to guess at least a few of them. So let's talk about what kind of shifts may or need to take place in education. Well, one of the most severe you know, things that has happened as a result of this fear about overloading our hospitals with a, a large number of patients has been a very quick decision by most of the governors in the country to shut down schools and universities for an extremely long amount of time. So my governor in Indiana just decided, first said schools will be shut for two weeks, then he said four to six weeks, then he said two months, and then just yesterday decided it was for the entire rest of the school year. And under some, you know, the model that has been governing a lot of the decisions policymakers are making right now, this could happen again in the fall. So we could be looking at American kids losing an entire year, basically, of learning and that is a big deal. So, you know, research on, for example, smaller things like this, such as the summer slide, you know, when kids are out of school for a couple of months in the summer, shows that, you know, suspension of learning absolutely affects the rest of someone's life. So we know that this is going to have a significantly negative effect on an entire generation of kids in schools and colleges right now. And, of course, there are some schools that are working very hard to mitigate the negative effects, but there are a lot of schools that are not (laughs) working very hard. I mean, I have a number of teachers complaining to me in my inbox, my school district is doing nothing, you know, the learning that we're doing isn't really learning, and, you know, this is going to happen for, at a minimum, two to three months of nothing, including summer, and then possibly again in the fall. And so I care most about learning, right? What they get, learning an entire year of, of your education is just for me as a parent, a complete non-starter. <laughs> but then there's other, you know, things that parents rely on schools for, such as just basic stability, you know, for a schedule, for a regular, you know, knowing what's going to happen in their lives. Of course, there's lots of working parents who now, you know, in addition to having worries about their employment, are now on top of all of that in this very unstable home situation. So that is, and again, for for a very significant period of time, even if we don't have fall closures, we're going to be looking at three to six months here of significant instability, and that's just going to have reverberating effects. What about, as a society, prepping for emergencies, government incompetence, things like that? Well, I, I was actually surprised to hear from a number. I mean, so I have a large number of kids, so we already shop at Costco, and I don't like to shop a lot, so I stock up. You know, so we already kind of lit. I mean, we don't, we're not preppers by any means, but, you know, we, uh, you know, just have lots of stuff in our pantry because we eat lots of stuff all the time. <laughs> so I was surprised to learn, you know, and, and go to my grocery store and, you know, just see for many, many weeks on end, for example, you know, there's no flour on the shelves. And I and I bake basically every day. And I know most people don't do that. Anyway, so very clearly our, our way of, you know, thinking ahead and having things on the shelf because we don't like to shop a lot. That's not the way that a lot of Americans live. But it is a really good way, you know, just basic preparedness for emergencies 
is something, you know, that basically just about anybody can do. You know, as long as you just pay attention to what you have in stock and, and you're rotating it, so, you know, so things as they expire, you're eating them and so forth. But Americans are obviously not very well prepared, even for very small disasters. If you just look financially, almost half of Americans, for example, say if they had an unexpected $1,000 bill, they wouldn't be able to afford it. I mean, in the, in the larger scheme of things, that's a relatively small expense that pretty much anybody with a job should be able to have saved up money for. And it's the same thing with just kind of our household supplies. It's kind of basic life management <laughs> to have some food around your house and to have a little bit of extra money in your bank account. What about the work environment? What do you think needs to change post-corona? Well, I think this is actually the education and the work are, are absolutely tied because, you know, so many parents are working. The majority of mothers, for example, are, are working in the workforce in some capacity. So the way that we're, you know, being forced to live now is going to have absolute effects on our relationships with our schools and our employers. And so on the employers, for example, and lots and I mean, if, if you look at polls, especially of mothers, lots of people would like to have more flexible work arrangements, be able to work from home and either have been too scared or to, to try to negotiate that or, you know, have tried to ask their boss for that and had been refused. And so now they have an opportunity while being forced to work from home of showing I can do this very capably and making that case to their boss after the epidemic passes. And that really is something that I think I've been writing about this for a long time, you know, even before this kind of social crisis happened. We don't live in the industrial era anymore, but we have a lot of rules, regulations, and habits that are basically, you know, 100, 150 years old that don't fit our way of life now. So because of this emergency, a lot of those are being shifted and and stripped away. And some of that is destabilizing, but also some of that could have positive consequences, such as, you know, workers being more open to people working from home, you know, maybe you know, a couple of days a week or being on a part-time basis because a more flexible workforce is also a benefit to the employer for absorbing these kinds of situations as well. Joy Pullman is our guest managing editor of The Federalist. We're talking about cultural changes and the coronavirus. What kind of changes need to take place regarding social norms and disease? This Holy Week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we're journeying on in Hebrews. Covenant blood, the willing victim. The new and living way, a better possession and an abiding one. And the roll call of faith, Abel and Enoch. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand at thewordendures.org and on the Lutheran Public Radio app. The world around us is laser-focused on the fear of death and disease. The April issue of The Lutheran Witness has the answer, Jesus and His Resurrection. In this issue of The Lutheran Witness, Dr. Adam Francisco answers objections to the resurrection. The Reverend Sean Denzer discusses resurrection hymnody, and there's so much more. If you're worried about death, then take the opportunity to read about life in Jesus and His Resurrection. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe today. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. cph.org slash witness. Where Christianity meets culture, you're listening to Issues Etc. 
Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills, too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the gift of Latin today. To order, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Overnight, the world has become a strange place. The abnormal has become the new normal. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Every faithful little church is an ark of salvation. With Christ on board, we will get safely to the other side. Be of good courage. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about cultural changes that the coronavirus will likely bring with Joy Pullman. Here is a little bit of a long prayer from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for April. The prayer is called Prayer in Satanic Tribulations. God be merciful unto me, for the evil one wishes to make me drown and daily fights against me. But gain glory for yourself and scatter my physical and spiritual enemies. Rebuke the devil that he may flee from me. Good and faithful shepherd Christ, who redeem me from the power of the devil with your precious blood, deliver my soul from the jaws of the infernal wolf. That sounds like a prayer that anybody could be praying these days, and it comes from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for April called Lutheran Prayer Companion. Find out more about this fantastic prayer resource, over 500 prayers and additional devotional resources. 1-800-325-3040. Just give Concordia Publishing House a call or browse before you buy at our website, issuesetc.org Lutheran Prayer Companion The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for April Joy, I'm curious about what kind of changes need to take place with regard to our social norms and illness and disease I've been really frustrated by a lot of things a lot of inconveniences being forced on my family while we live in a relatively rural area that has very little likelihood of seeing very big problems from the disease so far. But one of the really good things <laughs> that I have been noticing is, um, you know, people all of a sudden magically are washing our hands, we're, you know, sneezing into our elbows, we're realizing that going out while we're sick or we just supposedly feel a little bit better, you know, yesterday, we're still probably carrying around some germs that we can give to other people, and it's especially harmful for the most vulnerable, people who have lower immune systems, the young and the old and the sick. And so I really would love if that social norm continued because (laughs) this flu season was a really rough one for a lot of people, you know, coronavirus aside, my family spent four or five weeks, you know, this rotating group of sicknesses that were just being passed around by people who, you know, would go out into public the very day after a fever, you know, they or their kids lost a fever. So it would be great if we could. We all realize, wow, that actually hurts other people. <laughs> and it's a really loving thing to do for your neighbors to just take extra care with sicknesses and cleanliness because that, you know, is, is a blessing and a kindness to other people. You've mentioned some of this, but basic financial responsibility. Talk about it both 
at the kind of family level, but also at the broader community level. Right. So I mentioned this earlier about the fact that half of Americans couldn't sustain a relatively small financial setback of $1,000 in unexpected expenses. When I say that that is a problem and they should be taking more responsibility for their lives, I am saying that, you know, knowing very full well, you know, a lot of people do live on the margins. You know, a lot of people have very tight budgets. I mean, and I actually, my family, and and many different times, we've experienced that ourselves. But I also know that, you know, Americans, for example, will say, oh, I don't have money. I can't save money. And they're spending $100 on their cell phone or they are going out to eat frequently or going to a more expensive college than perhaps they should have. I don't really care about their personal financial decisions. That's their own business, except when they then say, oh, because I've made a bunch of bad decisions then I need other people to give me their money. (laughs) You know, my husband and I, when we were first married, we also had, you know, a large amount of college debt and and we scrimped and we saved and we didn't, you know, travel, we didn't eat out. And so we tightened our belts and we lived on a very small income in order to put ourselves in a position where, you know, we can have food on the shelf, we can pay our medical bills and so forth. And so it's kind of like the parable of the ant and the grasshoppers. And in some cases, of course, I I do, of course, leave space for the fact that some people really are so poor that their budgets are that type. But I don't think that actually is the case for most of Americans. I think because we're so rich, Americans tend to consume and consume and, and not penny pinch and not say, maybe I'll delay college for a year, either in the middle of it or before it, and I'll earn some money so that I have less debt. You know, so that when tight times come, I can still make my bills without having to take from people who who did make hard choices to do the same thing that I should be doing right now. (laughs) So Americans, we have got to be a lot better about not spending everything that we make and not requiring other people to pay our expenses. When we all know emergencies are going to happen in life. That's just a part of life. Bad things happen, and we can't prepare for everything, but we can at least prepare somewhat, you know, and, and, and generally prepare and, and be better, more responsible for our own behaviors and not spending everything that we make. And that's both individually and as a nation, we all should know <laughs> that our, our nation right now has more than $150 trillion in debt and unfunded liabilities. That is spending promises that we have already made, that we have already throw, you know, basically burned through all that money. So that is a moral problem because what it does, living like that really basically is forcing future generations to live in indentured servitude to us to say, you know, I am going to take money from you because I, you know, refuse to live within my means now. And that is a moral wrong. And we need to stop living like that because, again, personal and national disasters are going to come. And a wise and prudent and moral and just people prepare for emergencies. And rather than, again, you know, making our kids pay the bill for our current spending. Closely related to that is learning how to live through times of deprivation. I think that's probably what scares most people the most. They're scared of getting sick, but they're really scared that this is going to be an extended period where the economy cannot support itself. I mean, I think that is a legitimate fear, and there is possibly some injustice in the government deciding that a business that somebody has depends on, has spent 30 to 50 years building, just all of a sudden doesn't get to exist anymore to hypothetically possibly, 
you know, reduce a load on our hospital system based on very bad numbers and uh, really a lack of data. There's obviously legitimate fears there because, again, it's not just money versus lives because money often equals lives, right? So, I mean, if I can't provide for my family to eat, they starve. (laughs) If I can't provide for my family to pay for health insurance, when my kid breaks his arm, we could go bankrupt, right? So financial capacity is not just all of us just want to have swankier houses and cars while we let people die in hospitals. The financial capacity really also is lives in the balance. But you're absolutely right that my husband and I talk about this all the time, how at much younger ages, we were able to live more comfortably than both of our sets of parents were. And my dad didn't even go to college, right? So he didn't have to start life with college yet. But we both remember times in our our lives where our parents looked at us and said, we we don't have money for that. Or, you know, we're going to be eating, you know, very plain food for a little while because things are a little tight. (laughs) And and, and in the historical span of things, life has been so, so much harder for the world, basically in all of history until just the past couple, you know, the United States since the 1950s. We are so rich that we don't have any idea what it would be like to live, you know, so if you read for one of my favorite examples is the Little House on the Prairie books. If you read how Ma and Pa Ingalls had to live just to put food on their table, I mean, they were basically dirt poor, but they they were dirt poor people with a middle class sensibility, meaning they worked hard, they kept it together, you know, their kids had clothes and food to eat, but there just was not one single non necessity. You know, the the doll that little Laura got was a corn cob with a scrap of cloth <laughs> wrapped around it and it was one of her most treasured possessions, right? So almost no Americans, even our poorest Americans, are not at that level of poverty. I also had, you know, a a friend say the other day, oh, my goodness, this crisis is, it's like being in World War II. And I'm sitting there thinking, they had collected old tires for scrap for the fighter jet airplanes in World War II. You know, you you had rationing of food. You couldn't get, you know, all these sorts of things. I can still get crazy exotic stuff at my supermarket right now, coconut oil and avocados. So just... We don't really know what hardship to us is going to the grocery store and not finding flour on the shelf, but finding plenty of other things. And because we lack of really, I mean, Americans just don't know any history, so we don't have any perspective to put on this situation. But look, I mean, history shows us that there are many hardships in individual lives and in the lives of nations and in the world. They are statistically in all of our lives, they are going to happen. And so we have to be used to saying no to ourselves, to tightening our belts, to doing without, and then also doing what I really struggle with, doing it cheerfully, right? No, I'm not going to buy that. No, I can't have that right now. No, we can't go out right now. And, you know, just adopting to really having way less than we've had before is psychologically a really big deal. We have to train our souls just like we train our bodies. If you want to be fit, if you want to be healthy, you have to work out. And I don't like working out, and I bet most people don't either, but, you know, you do it for a greater purpose because it's good for you in the long run. And we have to stop being so mentally and spiritually fat. (laughs) We have to go on a diet. We have to, you know, get fit mentally and spiritually. And I think, you know, the things happening socially right now are really revealing that we have all gotten pretty fat. And we could we could use some strength training right now, and this is a good opportunity to think about where we could individually do that and start working on it. 
Finally, then, with about 30 seconds, what are your thoughts about what needs to change after coronavirus when it comes to revitalizing the community and those relationships? Well, I I mean, for for me, having to watch a live stream for church has really, I mean, I knew this before, but really brought home how that just doesn't cut it. And lots of us have been living, and, and we also have discovered how we're interconnected, whether we want to be or not, and also how a lot of our institutions are not very good at these sorts of stress tests. And in order for us to be able to come back from whatever is going to happen in the times ahead, we need to be able to come together, you know, to solve our own problems at a local level, because quite frankly, our government, our healthcare system, all those other ones have a lot of really big weaknesses, and they're not going to be able to save us completely. So if we want something good to happen, we need to be investing in our families and communities and the relationships that are going to make that much more likely to happen than trusting in some, I'm about to laugh because I don't believe in Congress as a savior of basically anything, but you know, the Congress is certainly not going to save us. Even when they try, they maybe make things worse. So again, we need to have individual responsibility for ourselves, our families, communities, and that starts with, again, local level at our neighborhoods, checking in on people, making sure that the the eatery down the street, the lady who's working there, gets our stimulus check because we're still employed or whatever the case may be. And not just doing that in a crisis, but long term. You know, our, our local communities need our investment of our time and our money. And we don't we shouldn't wait around for the next crisis to make them stronger and better able to absorb what's going to happen. Joy Pullman is managing editor of The Federalist. She's author of the book, The Education Invasion, and a recent column titled Seven Major Cultural Shifts the Coronavirus Should Make Happen. You can read it and purchase The Education Invasion at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Joy, thanks. Thank you. We'll be listening to a Lenten meditation titled The Earthquake and the Centurion's Confession from Pastor Peter Bender, director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, next. Prayers for anxiety, assurance, forgiveness, plagues, sickness. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for April contains more than 500 prayers that cover almost any situation. It's titled Lutheran Prayer Companion. Browse before you buy at issuesetc.org or find out more and purchase Lutheran Prayer Companion by calling Concordia Publishing House weekdays during regular business hours, 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for April, Lutheran Prayer Companion. Historic St. Paul Lutheran Church in the heart of Austin, Texas, is glad to support the work of Issues Etc. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul, and I'm glad we're part of this effort. Issues Etc. for decades has been the premier voice of Lutheran doctrine and biblical teaching in all of the world, and we're glad to be a little part of making sure that the work continues. If you're ever in Austin, stop by and visit us. All the information is on the website, stpaulaustin.org. That's stpaulaustin.org. This is Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University Chicago, with a message for parents, grandparents, and godparents of college-bound children. Concordia Chicago is a distinctive, comprehensive university of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're devoted to our Lutheran confession and committed to strong academics. Please encourage your child, grandchild, or godchild to check out Concordia University Chicago at cuchicago.edu.
Lutheran Federal Credit Union serves the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod community with car and personal loans, mortgages, credit cards, checking and savings accounts. Lutheran FCU supports LCMS organizations with its Spotlight Ministry program, and Lutheran Federal Credit Union allows you to make purchases with Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay using your digital wallet. Learn more at lutheranfcu.org. Good for you. Good for the church. Lutheran Federal Credit Union. LutheranFCU.org. Talk radio for the thinking Christian. You're listening to Issues Etc. I like to think of the deaconess vocation as driven by two things, the love of Christ and the needs of our neighbor. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. James Busher, Director of Deaconess Studies at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, on the vocation of deaconess. First, the deaconess is moved by the love of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. Yet I think we can also see the profound needs around us, broken families, loneliness, despair. Deaconesses help the church to become a true family that manifests the love of Christ in our love for one another, and especially for those in need. For more information on the Deaconess Studies program at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, visit ctsfw.edu or call Concordia Theological Seminary at 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155.